Hello there, my fellow sleuthkins. Or what did you call them last time? Sleutharians. Sleutharians. How do you feel about that? Good, but what I feel like people from a place called Sleuth. Is that what it is? <laughs> they live know, on the island of Sleuth. The, they're rolled off the tongue. I don't know. <laughs> Sleuth, however you want to identify, that's fine. Welcome to Rewriting Dad. I'm your co-host, Meg Murphy. And I'm Leslie Bradford Scott. Welcome to episode six. We left off, you were talking about your screenplay over the curb. I'm waiting for people to, at any point, if we have investors out there listening in Sleutharianville, <laughs> if anybody wants to invest, over the curb still needs to be made. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I think it needs an update by now. <laughs> a lot's happened since then. <laughs> no, it could actually be a throwback. A kind of, maybe they didn't, we didn't have cell phones when you wrote it, right? Oh, actually, I think I had a flip phone back then. A flip phone. See, yeah. we could do it old school. We could do it like retro. Some makes a, <laughs> a mixtape for someone. Oh, fun. <laughs> we were talking about your career and you were working in a car dealership. You were writing a screenplay on post-it notes that won in a competition. You then won another animated competition for screenwriting. So now take me back. You're standing there looking out that window into the car lot, still trying to be the first one to a patron, a potential car buyer. Are you still writing screenplays? What's happening in your life? I'm still writing. And I still have this belief that if I keep putting one foot in front of the other and taking a step towards a dream, that that was really the only option. Because if I didn't take a step towards something, nothing was going to happen. There was nobody to come. I knew nobody was going to rescue me. Like I wasn't going to win the lottery if I wanted to do something meaningful with my life that I cared about, that I could get excited about. Just put your foot in front of the other one. Just keep going and forget about how long it's going to take. Just keep doing that thing. Have you been, are you someone who does, you know, vision boards and uses the secret and that kind of, are you that kind of a person? No, no, I wasn't a secret person, but I am a journaler. I am a journaler. I do journal, journal light. I write goals down. I'm a goal setter. Right. So were you setting, what were your goals then that you wrote down at that time that you wanted to achieve? So I would write a goal like write a new screenplay or, you know, I would just very sort of a short term and long term goal. And it was always, you know, learn something and take this course or read this book. And it was always something to do to improve my professional life. Hmm. I knew I just did not want to be in the car business forever, that that was not going to be my lot. Ha ha. Car lot was not going to be my uh-huh. lot. <laughs> but you stayed selling cars for a while and then you got promoted. So I actually went to another dealership to take advantage of an opportunity to become finance manager, which is really interesting because I failed math twice. <laughs> and so the dealer had me tested one of those, I think it was Myers-Briggs. Right. For personality. Test. Do you remember what you were? I can't remember what I was, but I do remember this. I get called into his office and he said... The psychologist thinks there's something wrong with your test, and we're going to need you to take this test again. I'm like, what? <laughs> again? Is he this says, like boot yes. camp all over? I'm like, what is <laughs> Did going on? Did my dad call? What? Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Having trauma. And he says, yes, it just doesn't add up. So we're going to have to take it. You're going to have to take it again. And so I did. And then we got the exact same results. And he said, we've, the psychologist have never seen this pattern. And it, it was, it had something to do with my creativity. Mm. My creativity was like off the charts. Right. And my emotional intelligence was really high, but my math skills were really bad. (laughs) She'd be perfect for finance. And my sales skills 
It actually wasn't my math skills. It was my sales skills. Now that I remember it had nothing to do with my math skills. My sales skills were subpar. And he says, according to this test, you can't sell. But I had been a top salesperson. And he reckoned because he knew he saw my awards and he saw, you know, I showed him my results of my sales career. And he says, the psychologist thinks it's because your emotional intelligence combined with your high creativity helps you to overcome the fact that you can't sell. (laughs) Because you'll find out what it is that the client needs. Yes. Wow. So that's what served me all those years because I hated selling. I absolutely hated it. So I got the job as a finance manager and I learned and I became an, I became really good at it. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon I was making about $130,000 a year back then. Wow. And so we went from being poor mm-hmm. to now I was taking my kids to Europe and showing them the world and we were having a great time and it was amazing. And I even built a custom home. Really? Mm-hmm. So I was really successful. There was only one problem. What was that? I had the worst boss ever. Really? He was the movie Horrible Bosses. He was such an unethical, horrible, horrible man. It made me sick. Like unethical in what way? uh, Treatment of people. He would do a lot of, and I'm not going to go into the details, but the way he treated people and some very sketchy behavior with young girls Uh and my supervisor that he supported Hmm. very unethical. So, and I was so interesting if I, I'm cutting you off. I apologize, Mm -hmm. but it's so interesting that your dad, when he first started in the car business, he worked with someone who he said was super unethical and he didn't like, Oh my God, there's a pattern. Yes. Oh, damn it. And he didn't like working for him. And then your dad actually became ethical and unethical at the same time. He didn't treat people poorly that worked for him per se, but he was up to a lot of shady business. But it had nothing to do with treating people badly. No, it wasn't about treating people badly. But it's interesting that there's sort of a similar, does knowing that and reading this change your experience at all to think you understand your dad a little bit more? Or does it make you understand your own? Actually, what it made me think of is, wow, all these years later and the car business still sucks. Right. <laughs> so, wow. And there, and I shouldn't say that totally. There are some really ethical yes. dealers out there. I don't want to take that away. I did work for a really ethical dealer. The first one I worked yeah. for, he was great. Yeah. So, but it, there's a lot of sketchy stuff that goes on for sure. Yeah. And, you know, with the internet, I think it's getting better because people can't get away with the things they used right, to. Right, you can check things. Yeah, but it, but it was interesting to me when I read that. It was like, oh my God, we were like living the same life. Yeah. How, what happened here? How did I get there? Yeah. It's just repeating history. I know. And I think some of it is obviously because it's what you knew. And in a time when you're feeling pretty broken, you're drawn to something that you recognize. And yet I also think there's something about a mirror being held up for someone who is constantly seeking the truth. Perhaps there were some lessons there for you to understand your dad a bit more. I think you're right. It did give me a lot of insight as to, because there are a lot of times when you're walking the line Mm. between, right? And you're, you're kind of put in a position to, when that's the thing that's paying the bills at the end of the day, you're wobbling there and you can go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And it did help me understand my dad a bit better for sure. So what did you do with this horrible boss? So the recession came of 2008 mm-hmm. and he came in to the office and there were five people doing what I did. Wow. Big dealership. Yeah. And it was a used car superstore. So 
it was actually good in a recession because people didn't buy new anymore. They'd go out and buy a used car. So right. it was actually better. We were getting more business. Oh, interesting. Recession. So he came in. That. Yeah, he did. And he said, he put down a piece of paper and he said, right. This kind of reminds me of that Monty Python, you know, and, right. I've lost my job at the factory. You're all being sold for milk. <laughs> right. I says, right. So as you know, there's a recession and people are going to be lining up for your jobs. So, and he put down a piece of paper, which equated to about a 40% pay cut for all of us. So you're signing this or there's the door. And so I thought, hmm, my kids are pretty much grown. I had a daughter going to New Zealand on, on a non-reciprocal exchange. She was only had one year left of school. She was going to be doing it in New Zealand. Hmm. And my other one was just graduating college. I'm like, huh, right. Well, I've always hated this business. <laughs> Well, I think I'm taking the door. Wow. <laughs> and you'd been door. 10 years, more than 10 years. More than 10 years. And I thought, and so I rented out my beautiful home and I had some cash, you know, just from making good money mm -hmm. all those years. And uh, I literally got a place on a river, a tiny little place on a river way up north. And the reason I wanted to go so far up north was, well, first it was beautiful hmm. and it was secluded. And I really wanted to sort of hit the reset button, but I wanted to get to a place where I couldn't see his name on the license plates of cars. Wow. And that was as far as, that was the closest I could be was like five hours north. And did you know anyone there? Uh, no, no, actually I knew somebody. Yeah. And then um, I just sat there and I wrote, I... This was your writing cabin. It was my writing cabin. Yes, it was my writer's cabin. And it was right on a little river and there was... I think maybe a hundred people in that whole village. Mm -hmm. There was no gas station. There was no nothing. There was a tiny little grocery store. It wasn't really even a grocery store. It was more like a quickie mart. But was um, it idyllic for you? It was idyllic for me at the time. And I hiked and I kayaked and I wrote and I just decompressed. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about the next stage of my life and what I wanted to accomplish. And I wrote my journal and I studied writing. Mm -hmm. And then I, after nine months, I needed to get a job yeah. <laughs> eventually. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I was running out of cash. So I took a great job at a recreational dealership where they sold like boats and ATVs and snow machines. And I was the finance manager there. It was great. It was nine to five weekends off. I drove an hour each way to get there and back because it was, I was out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And it was just kind of ideal. It's interesting you've gone from this life of chaos for much of it, really, like from early childhood was all right, but your parents weren't always there, moving around a lot, then moving to Florida, which was the most chaotic time, losing your brother, coming, then your Coast Guard, Green Beret, in an abusive marriage, struggling to stay afloat, and then suddenly you're all quiet in the woods. Hey, wait, we forgot about winning those awards. Oh, right, winning the awards. <laughs> my bad, my bad. <laughs> I have a picture of that. I'm going to put it in the box. Yes, yes, you are. Yes. But then suddenly it's just time to be quiet. Yes. It was great. It was a really important, meaningful time for me to just take a step back and de-stress, like hit the release valve and just pff, let it go and at make time, peace. Did you write about your life at that time? Yeah, I was, I was writing all the time. About your yeah. experience? And about my experiences. And... and yeah, I was doing that. Never did anything with it, but I was. So I was at the probably the three pivotal times in my life. Two of them 
I went to Killarney Provincial Park mm. and I hiked. It's a wilderness park. It's beautiful. Have you been? I have. Yeah. It's stunning. Yeah, it is stunning. And I did week-long trips. So before I left my husband, I had that experience. That's where I kind of made up my mind to pick that date. Hmm. And then at that particular time when I was sitting on the river, I wanted to go back in and have a, a long weekend in. So this would have been like the fourth time going to the park. And what but were you I, searching for on that I trip? just wanted to get in, just get into the park. Just okay. see what the no park particular, said to you. See what the park said to me <laughs> yeah. for the next thing. So I had a long weekend off and I knew I couldn't hike in as far as I wanted to go because it was too far. So I thought what I need is a float plane pilot to fly me in and drop me off and pick me up. So I went uh, poking around finding one and somebody says to me, oh, there's this guy who has a float plane at a fishing lodge in the next town from you. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Why have I never heard of him? Mm-hmm. So I was in my office and one of the salespeople was standing there and I put, I got him on speakerphone and I said, oh, hello, I'm calling about your float plane, I'd like to hire you to take take me into the park and blah blah blah. And blah. drop me off in the middle yeah. of nowhere. <laughs> and he and he he has this great British accent, and he says, "Oh yes, I'm yes, I, I'm I'm able to do that on Friday. Yes, I'm free." And uh, away we go. And here's how you get here. And hangs up. And the guy that's standing in front of me said, "Oh, that's your next husband." What? And I'm like, what? What? What are you on about, Adam? He says, "Yeah, I just don't." know where that came from, but that's your next husband. You're going to marry this man. I'm like, you are insane. You're an insane person. Get out of my office. Go get a donut. (laughs) Go eat another donut. You need more sugar. (laughs) So anyways, so this guy flies me into the park on a Friday morning. We agree that he's going to pick me up in a certain place on Sunday afternoon. And he lets me off. We have a nice little chat. It's not a very long flight. It's about 15 minutes. And then when he picks me up on Sunday, he opens a door and he, he gets out and he says, we're going to have to go right now. Do you see that storm? It's coming in over the mountain. We got to go now. So I get in the plane. We just get off the water. And he turns to me and he says, so are you single? <laughs> and I said, what, what did I say? I said, oh, that's very forward. And he says, it's a really short flight. (laughs) That's a great line. Now, if I was writing rom-coms, I'd remember that one. (laughs) It was so funny. And I I was, to be honest with you, I was kind of flustered. He was was older than me. Yeah, he's quite quite a bit older than me. Quite a bit. He's 17 years older than me. And I thought, nope, this guy's too old for me. I'm not going to get involved with somebody who's not going to be around that long. And he probably isn't very, you know you know, he's probably a lot slower than me, you know, and he won't be able to keep up with me and all this stuff. So we get back and he, he wants me to stay for dinner. He asks me, invites me to stay. He doesn't want me. He invites me (laughs) and I, and I decline. I said, I have to go. I have plans in the middle of no bloody where, <laughs> like there's nothing to do where I live. There's no plans to be had. You're just it's making obviously it a lie. Yeah. I have plans. I have skunk traps to look Sk- into. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he does, he actually talks me into having one glass of wine with him. And I thought he was really delightful, but then he asked me out on a date and, and I very politely declined and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not available really. And I leave, I go to work the following Tuesday 
I'm coming home from work and the highway shut down. Some lady, some old lady hit a milk truck. Oh, no. And the highway is covered in milk and she died. No. And so they shut the thing down. And I have to go this like wilderness back way home, which is like an hour and a half out of my way. But it makes me circle back, ending up in the middle of where his town is. Okay. And it's like seven o'clock by now. Like, I think I left at five and it's now seven o'clock. And I'm sitting at, there's no stoplight in this town. There's just a stop sign. And I could go straight and be at my house in 15 minutes. Or I could go left and be at his house in 15 minutes. So... I pick up the phone. I, I'm like, because why am I here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I pick up the phone. I call him and he says, oh, your, your timing is, is absolutely perfect because I've got supper on right now. And so it's like seven o'clock. It's a Tuesday night. He lives alone. Yeah. He's got supper on. He's delightful already. And so I get there. He has a full on roast beef For on himself. the barbecue. With mashed potato or mashed potatoes, roasted potatoes, carrots, and a giant salad with chopped eggs in it, and tomatoes and mushrooms, and I'm like, "This is for you? Oh yes. Well, you, you have to have a proper dinner. I am like in love with you, pal. Yeah. <laughs> that is. You are. I don't. I don't care how old you are. Yeah. <laughs> You're this is why now. you don't yeah. cry over spilt milk. <laughs> oh my god. That's so funny. Were you holding that like in your pocket for a little bit? Oh my god, I want to say it. (laughs) So we basically have been together ever since. And he is the most well, first of all, he's so entrepreneurial. He's so open minded. He's crazy adventurous. Like he's an aerobatic pilot. He flies this biplane, like flips it around the skies, like there's no tomorrow. He flies a twin engine aircraft. He was a helicopter pilot at one point, like in film and television. You know, he's just a really interesting man. And yeah, it looks like when you look at him, you think he's going a little bit slow. But then he's like, he does all this great. He's a sailor. Last year, he sailed the boat from the Bahamas to Daytona by himself for two days because I couldn't make it because I was working. So he's like, oh, I'll just take it. I'll just I'll just sail the boat over. And then he flew a twin engine, like a 1962 twin engine aircraft from Florida to England last year. <laughs> Like via Iceland. And he's 71. He's 71. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got more going on than Does most he ever look at you olds. and say, I was worried you wouldn't keep up, darling. <laughs> I think he does. He's probably like, you're kind of boring. <laughs> what do you got going? It's so interesting. And I love the way you talk about your relationship. I love when people have really healthy relationships and they admire their partners. I think that's really nice. And not in a enough stuff has happened in life that I'm not cheesy. I don't have, um, there's not a lot of melted mozzarella in my life, Uh, but I really love when partners find their significant other to be a really good person and you admire him and he admires you and you allow each other to be who you're supposed to be, which you did not have previously in your life. What was it in you that changed to be able to allow someone like that to love you? For a very long time, I didn't trust the experience. I kept waiting for the shoe to drop. Mm. I kept waiting to find out who he really was. Because he, how could anybody be so ethical and so nice, so kind, so genuinely kind, but it's that damn British accent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's not very kind. Yeah, and you just haven't noticed. But yeah. I haven't noticed because of the British it just accent. So it good. just sounds so good. <laughs> Maybe he yells at me all the time. But... <laughs> 
But he's so respectful of people. And I love it. He's so open-minded. Like he's so open to being, to changing his opinion about something. Like most people are really committed to like their political position or, you know, their beliefs in life or their religious beliefs. They're, they're like entirely committed, but he'll hear something and he'll say, you know, maybe I've been wrong about this. Let me examine it. Oh God, that takes a lot of confidence. He d- He's incredible. And he's really supportive of my career. You know, he's retired, but I'm working like crazy seven days a week again, mm-hmm. you know, running my business, but he fully supports it. He never gives me a hard time ever. He never says you're working too much. I never see you or he just does his own thing. Oh, you're working. I'll do my own thing. Let's take my plane. Out I for don't a while. need you. I don't need you to babysit me. <laughs> yeah. Which you is know, nice. it's great. And he's like, he's my steady. Like at the end of the day, if I've had a rough day, it's like, there is no problem that cannot be solved. Mm. There is nothing I ever need to worry about because we'll work it out. And he's, he, how can I help, Hmm. you know? And I just have so much respect for Mm -hmm. him and not in a sappy way, but he's just an incredible human being. I love him so much. I'm so fortunate. Oh, I love that. But I love it because you had to have really difficult men in your life and handle that somehow and be alone on a river for long enough and be alone in the woods for long enough to go, I don't want that anymore. And not even know that was a lesson you were learning. And I think that's important because if we don't take a step back and examine ourselves, we're just going to attract the same type of person again, aren't we? I mean, obviously I married my dad. There's no doubt about that. But if I didn't get my head right, that would have been a pattern I could have repeated for the rest of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have broken that pattern. And I'm so glad that I took the time out to do that. Did you write when you were writing those goal lists of, you know, in your mini journals, journal light, if you (laughs) you called it, and you were writing most of them career, was it ever about love again? Do you know, I don't feel like I did. Actually, it was a real surprise when I met my husband because I think I had given up on love. Hmm. I think I had... Not in a cynical way, like in a, do you know what? This is really good. What I've got right now with myself in terms of, I don't have to report to anybody. I'm not controlled by anybody. If I want to do something, I can do it. My kids are grown. I own my life. I wasn't really like, oh, I got to find somebody now. I didn't have that emptiness anymore. I didn't feel that desperation. And it was kind of off my radar. So when I did meet him, it was like, what? Yeah. Where? What? No. Yeah. And did you... Trust yourself going back in yourself. Oh, no, I did not trust myself. I did not trust my opinion. And your own judgment. Or my judgment. No, like it took years for me to get that out, to gain the trust. Yeah. I know that feeling because I had that as well, where I, when I went on my own cycling journey and made my own film, I remember having this time on a, on the bike where I was about like hour six and every body part hurt. And I remember sometimes you have to like break yourself a little bit physically or you have to put yourself somewhere where all you are stuck with are your own thoughts. Yes. And I remember thinking like, you are a really good friend to everyone else. You're a really good friend, but you haven't been a good friend to yourself over the last little while. And if my own friend had been in that relationship, I would have gone, come with me, get the hell out of here. But I couldn't do that for myself. And I vowed to myself, like, I'm with me for the rest of my life. I'm married to me. Yeah. Good times and bad, sickness and in health, 24-7. Mama lives with mama. Yeah, there you go. I came into the world alone. I'm going out yep. alone. Oh, I had that same thought. I'm yes. Going, yes. And I was like, then I should 
spend more time making sure that the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life is happy. Yes, because nobody else is certain. You're no. the only one that you know for sure you're going to be with. Yeah, and, and when we turn out the lights, fight or no fight, great sex, no great sex, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I'm in my own head. Yes. It's me living in this head. It's me yeah. staring in this mirror. It doesn't matter who else is around you. You got to love you. You got to spend time marrying you. That's so true. How old were you when you had that realization? 35. Right. You got it a bit earlier than me. Oh, no, wait. No, yeah, I was a bit older. I was like 42. But you know what? Same, same. You get it. You get there. And thank God. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. But then you get tested with it again. (laughs) So now where are you at this point? You're back in relationship in a really interesting way. But where are you in your relationship with your dad? Well, actually winding it back, my dad and I were estranged about the time my youngest was, I'm going to say five. Because it was about the time that I split up with my husband. So my dad was actually living a double life. He was living with my later stepmom and my mom at the same time. Oh my God. And traveling, air quotes, for business. And I don't know how long that went on, but I think it went on for about a year or two. And the way my mom found out about it was she got a thank you note for a wedding gift, for a wedding that she didn't attend. And it wasn't her name. (laughs) It was my dad and someone else. And that's how she first clued into it. But he denied it, said it was a mistake. They made a mistake. But then eventually he did leave her. And he just, he left her by leaving a note on a legal pad on the kitchen table. And when she came home from work, I know. (laughs) (laughs) All these things I don't pick up. Thank God you're here to guide me. (laughs) So many things. But um, she was absolutely devastated because she stuck by him all these years. And how many times he went to jail and courts, court appearances, and how many times they lost houses and her life was turned upside down. And, you know, he just stuck it to her. But the worst part was that he screwed her financially. So instead of looking after her, the wife he had for like 30, I don't know, 30 something years, 38 years, maybe he tried to take half her pension. And he, of course, was really good at hiding his income. So Mm -hmm. he made himself look like he had no income, but he did because he was doing all these cash deals. Much like your ex had done to you. Yeah. Around the same time. It was around the same time. So you and your mom were going through a similar experience. Yes, we were. Mm Mm-hmm. And backing it up even further, your dad was in jail. Uh, he spent, he was sentenced to 15 years and spent four Correct. in jail for conspiracy to traffic. And you had your first baby and brought your daughter to jail to visit her grandfather. That's correct. To maximum security prison. What's your memory of that? Oh God, it was really, it was kind of like a weird movie. It was like really bleak. It you stood in a line and then you had to have, you know, all your belongings searched and there's some really nefarious types in this line, you know, and it was just, it was like stepping into the Shawshank Redemption set. It was nothing like I've ever experienced. It was crazy. And seeing my dad there looking so helpless and moralized because he was always such a confident person and it looked like somebody just deflated him. And he just shrunk. It was so sad. Was he behind glass or were you able to sit in a room with him? We were, the first visits was, were behind glass. And then he was eventually moved to a lower 
security, and then we could visit him in a room. So he was able to meet your daughter and hold her. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, your mom stayed with him then. He got out of prison. You were still in touch with him and trying to make amends for this. And at that time, did you think he was innocent? He claimed he was innocent. No, I, I kind of always thought he was a drug dealer. Hmm. Right? That's what I thought. And well, I think it's interesting, too, that like, even your ex-husband who was similar to your dad, the charming narcissist, could be the other name for your dad's memoir, really. The charming <laughs> narcissist. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> but he was a law enforcer. Did he have a problem with your dad? No, actually, I don't. No, they actually didn't. Even though he went to jail and... No, no. And your husband was around. No, he never really said anything maybe one narcissist can relate to another right maybe i see like, you man yeah i see you <laughs> just like wink wink yeah yeah nod of the head yeah Power, let's, it's a competition to who messes her up more yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wow interesting so it was after that your mom stuck with him he got out of prison and it was he began a second life and your mom knew nothing of it nothing and so that destroyed you when he left when I wasn't upset that he left. I never thought when I was a little girl, I didn't think they should be married. When I was a little girl, I desperately wanted them to get divorced and nobody got divorced back then. I don't even know how I knew about divorce, hmm. but I was just so angry that he would treat her like so poorly and then tried to take money from her. She, she was nursing at the time, which was her career, right? And she had a very small little pension that she earned. You know, she was the only one doing something legal. She was playing by the rules, and he wanted to take that away from her. And here he was, he was buying new Mercedes and living in a beautiful house, much nicer than my mom's, and then pretending he had no money and then trying to take what she had from her. It was pathetic. So was, you stopped speaking to him? I stopped speaking to him for a couple of years, and then my he married my stepmom, and she's lovely, really kind, sweet, wonderful person, and she's the one that put us back together again. And really, it came down to like, did I have the right to take away a relationship between my father and my kids, who I felt he wasn't doing anything dangerous anymore. Mm -hmm. So I felt they were safe. So do I get to decide that? And I thought, no, that's not up to me to decide. It's up to my kids to decide if they want to have a relationship. And they did. They had a great relationship. But did your dad want a relationship with your kids? He did. He wanted to get to know his grandkids. He was really good to them. Hmm. And they loved being around him. They liked his quirky sort of ways. They liked his cooking and the way he talked in the kitchen. And um, well, he was charismatic. He was very charismatic. They thought he was really fun. And he was now not as dangerous. That must have been so strange for you, though, too, to watch him. I don't know. Was it like playing out a bit of your own childhood, watching him with them in the it, kitchen and that sort of thing? Yes, but... It was different because where I was a nuisance to him to be mm. around him, you could see that he actually wanted to spend time with my kids instead of paying them to shut up. Right. So, but here's what my younger daughter says about what she remembers about her grandfather. Papa. Papa was very cool. So Papa would take us to this Asian market. And I just thought it was so cool because we would walk in and we would be the only non-Asian people there and he would just seem to know everybody and everybody knew him and they would tell him where to get the best lobster and they would point him in the direction for the blooming teas and I just thought it was so cool to be with him like it felt like we were a bit like celebrity status just because everybody knew 
who he was. And yeah, we'd come home with these live lobsters and he'd show us them. He'd throw them in the pot and they'd be squealing and he would just teach us how to do some really good cooking. And Papa always made the best. Did, did that like weird you out? It was creepy. It was awful. I was not loving it, it. He did that to me too. When I was a kid, except he put the live lobsters in my bed. Yeah. And I think he did say like, should we race them kids? And I, <laughs> I didn't want to race the lobster because they like, knew we had to them, eat like, on the floor. On like the floor? he wanted us to have races, but I don't think we did he want you to gamble on those races. Probably. <laughs> but yeah. He probably said, what do you have in your pockets? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised really. But yeah, Papa just had this passion for food and you weren't allowed in his kitchen. Like get out of my kitchen, get out of my kitchen. But he would present you with these beautiful meals. He'd make these epic waffles covered in fresh fruit and his homemade jam and whipped cream. And he would make Shepard Montier, which was his beautiful shepherd's pie. And he'd always bring you a fresh cappuccino and he'd froth it with his little frother. Like he just put his heart and soul into his food and just everything he did was with passion and he didn't do anything he didn't want to do. It was always his way, but I just thought he was so interesting and so neat. And I had never met anybody like him. He just was very unique. But my best memory that I was young, I think I was about five, Titanic had come out and I didn't know my papa very well. Our relationship hadn't been very close at that time. So he took my sister and I to the movie theater to see Titanic. And I remember him telling me I had to leave the theater because um, the scene was getting not good for me he said or it's not a good not a good scene for you so he took me outside to the the front door of the theater outside where the movie was playing and he made me stand there by myself and I I feel like I was about five and I waited and he said don't you move don't talk to anybody and I stood there and I waited and I waited and I waited until they came and got me so now as an adult I I believe that that was the scene where the Titanic was sinking maybe but uh do you think that it, or maybe it was the sex scene? Maybe like, it was the sex scene. Like, what do you think would have disturbed him more? His grandchild watching a sex scene or a sinking? Well, my sister was death. still in the theater. He let her stay. But five-year-old me had to wait outside with potential kidnappers. I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would have taken candy. I would have taken milk duds. If some, I was Somebody not like, a lean child. No. I was hungry. You would have been like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going with you. They would have said, milk girl, duds? I've lost Absolute. my puppy. Here's some milk duds. Absolutely. In a heartbeat. You would have been I would, over there. I would have been there. If somebody wanted to take you to the hand factory, Absolutely. would you have gone to the hand factory? 100%. If they had milk duds <laughs> and chocolate, for sure. Totally. I feel like it was the scene where it was sinking because I feel like he wasn't shy about sex. No. Based on later conversations that you had yes. with him. He was pretty like carefree and carefree that's and the french yeah that's the french <laughs> sex is good yeah it would have nothing been to be ashamed sinking. of nothing to hide yeah so it would have been like or maybe it was the part where the diamond necklace goes missing <laughs> and he thought i would catch on to his antics get out of get he out would, of here kid he would have wondered if it was him <laughs> leave you stand there that's so wait a minute <laughs> So he put her in the hallway, which might, yeah, was more dangerous. At the movie than theater. Me. Yeah. A little girl. But it kind of makes sense. And he's protecting her in some ways. This is so in line with your dad's character. He's protecting her in his mind from something while putting her at more risk. <laughs> exactly. It's just perfectly in line with his entire life. He says it throughout his memoir over and over again of everything I do, I do for my family. Everything I do, everything. I do for my family. It's all for, all for them. Yeah. And we're going to talk in future episodes about how he put you at risk and 
Much larger risk than standing, standing movie in theater. Cineplex Odeon. <laughs> We're seeing a sex film. Yeah. A sex, film. <laughs> a sex scene. <laughs> yeah. But you had reconciled then and your mom did not know you'd reconciled. No, we kept that from her mm-hmm. because we didn't, we wanted to protect her. Mm-hmm. And I struggled with that because it felt like a lie, but I thought what good could come out of me telling her? Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no good that will come out of that. Mm-hmm. So why... And to be fair, they were divorced. I didn't think that I needed to share that with her because it wasn't her relationship. And they had nothing to do with each other anymore. No, no. And your dad, after he got out of prison, he, as we know from episode one, continued with jewelry. Yes, he, that was <laughs> the mainstay of his life. He was really good at yeah, that. Yeah, he was good at jewelry. Uh, and he also started, he went back to school. He went back to school while in prison. He did. And actually, I just found his report card yeah this the is the best day such and a i'm great gonna thing put in it this. in the vault <laughs> yeah because what i loved about so after after prison he did start a computer business and he was very doing very well at it mm-hmm. but he continued with the jewelry at the same time but he got a's in computer science and data and he got a c in french <laughs> yeah and sociology <laughs> and which sociology. is also hilarious <laughs> and french and his first language was I know, french, french. A C. Yeah. Got a C. so great. Yes. It's so great. I wonder if he had taken Italian, would he have gotten an A in Italian? Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. I think, though, it's the similarity between you and your dad. And there's so many differences, but there are similarities that, you know, you've been put on similar paths sometimes. But there is something, I don't know if it's learned that you learned from watching your dad or some of it by osmosis being around that growing up. I mean, that energy. And he would have talked about his businesses or some of it might be DNA. I don't know. But you are able to see holes in markets, holes and needs in niche little areas, and then you find a way to fill them. And your dad was similar. He did the same thing, but he just did it with criminal activity. Yeah. <laughs> so and then later, do. it was like he computers and then dentistry. Yes. And he ended up owning a dental lab because he could see a hole in that market. And he didn't know anything about dental labs, but he hired people that did. And then he built the business the way he thought it should serve the market. And he did well at it. So he wasn't doing anything illegal at that time, later in his life that we know of. That we know of. Yeah. Maybe he was just tired. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It ran out of gas. But he was always able to find a little hole. And you've been the same thing. Like even you started a business, a childcare business before the internet. Right. You started a sort of nanny type we watch. It service. was like a home childcare referral business. Bef- yeah, before I built a database to connect people in their own name. I noticed a hole in the market. I noticed that somebody could have a home daycare around the corner from where you lived, and the, the person wouldn't even know that. Mm-hmm. So in this database, you could search your neighborhood and see, you know, who had a dog who didn't have a dog, who had a pool who didn't have a, a pool, who took kids that were two years old. And it was all these filters. Yeah, and that was pre- Were you still married data. then? I was still married then, yes. And was this on a computer? Were you doing, actually, like, were you saying database? You mean a on file my, folder? A file folder. Yeah. Right, but it, like paper database. <laughs> yes, paper, <laughs> the old school kind. I like it. So it was a registry. So people had to, to call connect you people. to have that. Right, and right. so um, it was great. It was a registry. It was like a, it was like a dating service. It was before- the first online dating, really. And it right. was like a dating service for people who needed childcare. It's genius. So you've done this a million times where you've rebuilt and reinvented. And I don't know if that makes you feel good or bad to know that that's similar to your dad. I think 
I mean, you're, you're always going to inherit some qualities, right? From your parents, it's inevitable. And I'm okay with that one because he was a really creative thinker. Mm -hmm. And I think had he harnessed that on a positive legal way, he would have really built an empire. He Mm would have built something good and durable. He would have built a legacy. And you know, I remember when I was a kid and he brought home the Commodore 64 computer. Like yes. nobody knew what that was. He was like an early adopter. So he brought it home, put it on the dining room table and he said, you see this thing, this machine? One day people are going to find their partners that way. They're going to date that way. They're going to shop that way. Everything. They're not even going to go to the mall anymore. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. What are you smoking? Yeah. And Look what happened. He was a visionary. He could see that. Yeah, he was. Yeah. But he didn't channel it. He was one of the, in the computer business he set up after prison, it was before Dell Computer. And he had the vision that people did not understand how to set up a computer, that they would buy it, get it home, not know what to do, to do with it. I'm still one of those people. You're still one of those people. <laughs> so he, his business model was, you write the check, somebody will show up. They'll install it for you, get everything working, get the printer working, get it all connected. And then they're going to sit down and show you how to turn it on and get started. Mm-hmm. And that was like, say it was a $2,000 package. That was the package you bought. It was A, B, or C. What mm-hmm. level do you want? It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. He was the king of middlemen. Like he, every business he had, he was a genius networker, genius yes. networker. And that's part of that charm. But he was always sort of didn't need to really know the ins and outs of whatever business it was. He just needed to know the right people. And I will set up the thing, have the right people to, I'll be the middleman who sets it up and I want it to run it by itself. If I could describe his skill in one word, it would be leverage. Right. He was the king of leverage. He would find out what you could leverage and then he would do it. So you reconciled and it was seven years ago that he passed away. That's correct. And your relationship, would you characterize it as healthy at that time? Yeah, I would say it was the best it could be for the history that we had. I would say, yeah, for sure. And my kids had a really meaningful relationship with them. And so I got a call from my my stepmom that she was worried about him. And she wanted me to come to a doctor's appointment. And I drove, I think I lived about four and a half hours away. So I came, I went to the appointment with him on a Monday morning. And the doctor said, you have cancer literally in every bone in your body and go home and just do whatever you want. Smoke cigars, eat cheesecake. If you want to get on a plane and go to France, go. Now's the time. There's nothing to do. And he refused to understand. He, he couldn't comprehend it. I, I wouldn't say refused. He just could not comprehend it. He kept saying, so what's the next step? And it was myself and my stepmom and I was, she's very sweet and very kind. And I'm more matter of the, you know, the more matter of fact person. And I say, dad, you don't understand. There is no next step. No, no, no. Like, are we going to get a doctor from Switzerland? Like, what are we doing? No, you're dying. And it's our job now to make sure that you get the most out of the rest of your life. How can I help you achieve that? Oh, no, 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 no. And it was really fast. It was three weeks between the diagnosis and the time that he passed. And it was so dramatic. Like the first day he's in the kitchen cooking and talking about what's on CNN and arguing with CNN. And uh, he really was interested in politics. And then like the next day it was like, oh, suddenly he couldn't like get the pan out of the cupboard. And then the next day it was like, suddenly he couldn't, you know, walk very well. 
And it just like every rapid single decline. day was very rapid. I couldn't believe it actually. It was happening like literally before my eyes. And so very quickly, within about a week, he was pretty much confined to the sofa and he had a lot of IV tubes in him. And I couldn't leave him alone for like five seconds because he could rip the tubes out because he was on drugs now and deteriorating. And so he would fall asleep. He would nod off for very short periods of time. And then he would come to and I had to be alert and be watching him so that nothing bad would happen. So I would get bored and I'd be like Googling. And my husband and I always wanted a farm. My husband was a farmer uh, for many, many years. And we wanted a farm that could house our flow plane with mm-hmm. a flow plane hanger. And so I'm Googling like farms for sale, float plane hangers. <laughs> but I had been doing that. While for you're t- sitting next I had to been me. doing that for two years and nothing ever came up. Right. And while that's happening, while I'm watching my dad, I'm Googling this and one comes up as a private sale. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So I call the guy and he doesn't call me back. I leave messages. I stalk him. I call him like a dozen times. He doesn't call me back. And then finally he calls me back and he says, look, you can stop calling because that place was sold like two months ago and it's a cash deal and it closes in two months and it's solid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like so disappointed. So I go back, you know, watching my dad. I'm, we're doing everything that we can to make him comfortable. And it got really quite bad where he was hallucinating a lot. And he kept talking about the FBI and the CIA how they were in the corner of the room and he didn't want to go with them and send them away. And he was insisting that they were there. And I thought, what kind of drugs are these? Like I never thought anything of it except that he was having these great, you know, delusions because of the drugs. And then he started talking about how there was all these guns and that, that he dumped them off the canal behind the house that we lived at before they came to arrest him, but they're still there and I should go get them. So when he did pass away, we had a little uh, memorial at their house and a lot of people showed up that I'd never met. He had this huge circle of friends from the swimming pool. He used to swim every morning at 5 a.m. And he had this great big circle of friends. They all came and they told me stories that were so hilarious. They loved him. They like, you could see what an impact my dad had on them. Like I was crying. I was laughing so hard at some of these stories. They, they just loved him. Right. Uh, so he had a good second act. He did. He did. And he had a quiet second act. So he used to be the person though, that would go out and party and gamble and do all of these things and socialize. And now it was just socializing at the pool at 5am, mm-hmm. getting his exercise. And then he would stay home and read most of the time hmm. and listen to opera. And, you know, deal, and- deal his jewelry. Right. And sell your ex-fiance a ring. <laughs> Just that, that. Kind of, that kind of <laughs> Just stuff. That. Just that. Yeah. So your dad passes away and you have this kind of eye-opening memorial for him. That makes you feel a bit better. It did. Yeah, it did. And then what happens? If you get a phone call. Right in the, yeah, right in the middle of that day, my phone rings and it's the guy with the farm... Cash deal, me, solid the cash deal. deal, solid deal. And he says, look, uh, I think my deal is falling through. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's, what? And he says, yeah, it turns out the guy has, you know, where you spend money, then you, you don't have. It's oh. like manic depressive, I think. Right. And Bipolar? he doesn't actually 
have he had the money to put down fifty thousand dollars or whatever but he doesn't actually have the money to buy the farm oh god and so it's still available and so my husband was there at the memorial and he says you can go see it tomorrow it's just sitting there empty and it had been rented out and it was being turned over for Mm. the week so uh, my husband and i showed up the next day and the entire place was like in a state of disrepair and all the historic barns were falling down and the crops had grown over. They were all like tall, tall weeds. It hadn't been farmed in years. And the house was a rental and they used to rent it like 16, 18 people at a time. Oh God. So it looked like a frat house. Yeah. And, but it was a beautiful house. The bones were good, but yeah. And my husband and I are standing there and I'm like, what do you think? And he says, well, you see those barns over there? They were built like in the 1850s. All those nails are made out of wood. Oh, and if we take this on, this is not just us living here. This is us taking on a responsibility to future generations. So we have to commit to being able to save this place because we can't just let it fall apart. And if you can figure out a way to make it work and to save these barns, then I'm in. I said, yeah, I could do that. My, the psychologist said, uh, my creativity is through the roof. I'll figure it and out. And my emotional intelligence. Yeah. Of course I can figure it out. Yeah. I suck at finance, but I can <laughs> I don't know math. <laughs> so we moved here and I went through like six different ideas. Like trying to like do well, these. Wait a minute, back up. Mm-hmm. You were standing in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Yes. That was amazing. So that day, so this is the day after the memorial. We're standing in the kitchen. I look over. There's a beautiful mantle. You've seen it. Mm-hmm. It's really old. The house was built in 1852. Mm-hmm. And carved into the mantle is my real name, which is not the name, is not Leslie. We refer to Leslie in the book as being my childhood mm-hmm. name, but that's not my name. My real name is, and it's not a common name. It's carved in there. And my dad had told my daughter, my daughter, he says, I'm never going to see you get married one day. And my, he knew my daughter loved ducks. And I remember I really desperately wanted a pet duck. I like more than anything wanted a duck. And I was in college still at the time. So obviously any pet was not convenient for me, but you just were saying, no, you can't get a duck. You can't get a duck. And I remember Papa saying that he was going to miss my wedding so that when I did get married to represent him, he wanted a white duck. So what I imagine would have been like a picking duck or whatever they use at Chinese restaurants. <laughs> with the long necks. He described it a white duck with a long neck. And he said, I want the duck to be wearing a tuxedo and that'll be me at your wedding. And so I'm standing there. I look at the mantle. There's my name. And then I look out the window and a duck lands in the swimming pool. I'm like, huh? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> There's some signs. <laughs> There's some signs. Back to episode there was one no with cheese the cherry. Cake. Yeah. No, no cherry, cherry cheesecake. But we live down the street from an amazing bakery. See, there's a duck <laughs> in your name. It's meant to be. So you came up with multiple ideas on ways to save the barn. And to, I had to get, create a job. I needed a job. I couldn't retire. Because you, you now moved from Northern Ontario. Four and a half Ontario. hours north. Yeah. You quit so your job. We, yeah. I, and here we are. I, my husband's retired, but I need to work. And um, Seems like a great idea. Yeah, great idea. <laughs> so I thought, like, what can I do that is, because a farm, a small farm will never pay 
you can't make money off of a small farm. It's really hard. 140 acres seems like a lot of acres, but it's not. Mm -hmm. You need about 1,500 acres to really make a farm work from a financial perspective. And that's why the barns are all falling apart because nobody can afford to fix them. Right. So I thought, what can I do that doesn't involve agriculture that I can scale and make in my kitchen that's not seasonal? And I remembered to all those times in my past where I was so stressed out and my coping mechanism, like there was days that I literally didn't think I was going to make it one more day. Like, how am I going to make it through tomorrow? I felt like I was level 10 going to explode. But the thing that kept saving me time and time again was a hot bath. Right. I'm like, kids, you see that lock? You touch it, you're dead. (laughs) I'm going on my vacation to the bathtub. I'm giving you $5 to stay quiet. (laughs) You shut it. You just shut it. I don't care what you go to the basement. And so I would light candles. I put spa music on and I would soak in some Epsom salts. And then I'd put my fuzzy pajamas on and I'd go to bed and I'd suck my thumb. Not really. I wouldn't suck Pretty much. I get it. that was what saved me. And I thought, you know what? There are other people like me that they need a little 20 minute rescue or 30 minute rescue just to hit the reset button, man. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, I can't make products and just like call them vanilla bath salts. Mm -hmm. Like everybody makes vanilla bath salts, right? You're way funnier than vanilla bath salts. Yeah. So I was like, what am I going to do with them? Like, how are they going to jump off the shelf? And so I named them for all the experiences in my life. Like I hated shoveling the car lot yes so you invented winter's a bitch and you had so many opportunities and so many times that reminded you that this was a week from hell which is a great time for you to tell us about our sponsor <laughs> which is Walton Wood Farm. Mwah. And here we are sitting at Walton Wood Farm. The offices are downstairs. Uh, that's why Meg and I are positioned in a bedroom. That's our podcast studio. <laughs> and today's featured product is our fumigator. So we have the boys don't stink, dorms don't stink, and then we have it in our pets line called Shitstorm Rescue. <laughs> and Meg, it is a bioenzyme and it digests other organic enzymes. So blood it uh, vomit, urine, all those fun things that we love. And it literally digests it. So instead of using harsh chemicals in your house, you know, you spill a gallon of wet red wine like I do on my shirt, yeah. just spray it and it eats it up. That's so cool. Yeah. And it gets the funk out of like, if you've got clothing, for example, uniforms that you wear over and over again, and you can't get the funk out of the armpits, just spray it on there, let it soak and it'll get rid of it. Funky towels that you forget in the wash. Oh, I do that all the time. And then yeah. I rewash them, pretend it never happened. Throw, you know, this stuff. You're yeah. a new mom and you have a new baby Spit who up. barfs on everything. Yeah. So it's a natural way to remove stains and it's really effective. So if you'd like to see our fumigators, come visit us at waltonwoodfarm.com. If you want to see the farm itself, check it out at waltonwoodfarm.com. You can see the beautiful, I understand why you bought this place, but you had to be, I keep seeing these similarities between you and your dad in ways when we started this, you had said something about, you know, you seeing yourself a little bit more in your father. And I read it and was like, well, I don't know if that I want to work with her because I'm not a big (laughs) fan of this maniac. She's a charming narcissist. But now I see these similarities. You're a visionary. You saw a niche. You, you had a problem to solve. You, you were coming to live here, leaving everything again and thinking, what's a hole? Where's there a hole that I can fill with something? What do people need? And how can I make that happen for them? And you did it again. 
It's definitely something I got from my dad. No mm. doubt about it. If I got anything good from him, that was it. And I really don't want to know about the bad things that I got from him. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're charming, but you're not a narcissist. But you How have had you your know? own. Well, maybe I am. I'll find out along the way. <laughs> I'm being taken. I'm being taken. <laughs> along the way, though, starting this business, you started really making things in your kitchen and it's come a very long way. Yes. So our products are shipped wholesale and retail across North America and over 2,500 stores. And we love it when people shop local. It's Mm -hmm. really important to support your local retailers. So the focus for us, the focus is really the local retailer, Mm -hmm. not so much our direct uh, dot com. Right. I always find it interesting how many things have to happen in life to lead you somewhere. And including, you know, all of the things that happened with your dad, how they've shaped your life, but even in his death, finding the farm that now becomes the name brand for your product. It's so interesting that that happened at his bedside. If I hadn't been there at that time, I wouldn't be here today. It was a pivotal moment for both of us, my father and I, in our relationship. I mean, he was leaving this earth. Mm -hmm. It was an ending and a new beginning. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he said to me on his deathbed, I wish I, when I said it from the earlier episode, when he says his only regret was selling the farm that he wished he could give it to me. And then the next day I'm at a farm. It's crazy. Starting a, a beauty brand, a personal care brand based on a farm branded as a farm. Mm -hmm. That duck, by the way, Came back every year until we got rid of the swimming pool. Really? <laughs> for like five years. Wow. <laughs> and Megan, I just want to go back for a second because when my dad was having those hallucinations about the CIA and the FBI mm-hmm. and the guns, I had no idea that one day I'd find out there was way more truth to that than just some hallucination. Meg, I think that's a wrap for today, don't you? (laughs) I I think we've covered enough. (laughs) Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Rewriting Dad and sign up for The Secret Vault at rewritingdad.ca where you'll get behind the scenes bonus materials. By the way, I'm having a lot of fun making that. (laughs) Videos and insights. I took one today. And inside secrets when you share and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And hit up our contact form at rewritingdad.ca. Tell us that you've given us a share and a review and we'll give you a double entry for a Walton Wood Farm giveaway. Good luck to you. Good luck. And as always, stay mysterious AF.